All right. <clears throat> I'm a little winded. <laughs> Had a uh, kind of a hay fever cold week. Uh, for asthmatics, that wears you out. And then this morning, I'm both leading the song, singing and preaching. Uh, uh, yeah, when it's tough just to breathe, right? I understand why. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. <laughs> if you don't have breath, it's hard to do that, right? Uh, so... We are in uh, Matthew's Gospel. We are having discussions in that, looking at that, uh, partly from a Jewish perspective so that we can understand it in its initial context, and then to uh, talk about its uh, application uh, toward, to us. Um, those discussions have included several themes, one of those, little or great faith, which will be the uh, part of the theme today. Getting Jesus Wrong, we've looked at that, text and tradition, and manifestations of the kingdom uh, through the healings and miracles that Jesus accomplished with the remnant of Israel. And we've also looked at the parables, these things where Jesus is giving information about the kingdom to his disciples, but not necessarily making it clear for those who are not of faith. And so, uh, to kind of fulfill what ultimately Paul will write when he says, the things of the Spirit are spiritually discerned and the natural man does not receive them because of that. So, uh, we're going to return to this little or great faith and I've entitled it Seeing Clearly because uh, I don't want to keep titling the same sermons just because of the theme. Remember that faith is trusting that God what God says about reality as opposed to what we see. Um, sometimes God tells us things that we can't see. Sometimes God tells us things that look different than what we do see. And faith is trusting God and His Word rather than what we see in that context. Faith then also sees beyond the temporal and beholds, I like that word behold, because it's broader than just seeing. It, be, it sees and understands. Which is really the theological essence behind behold. Uh, that which is eternal. So today we're going to see that the disciples are going to get some glimpses of the eternal. <coughs> Not permanently. Faith doesn't have a permanent perspective on this. But when we see it, we then are to live on the basis of that knowledge even when we no longer see it. Uh, so, Jesus said, what I tell you in the light, you remember in the darkness, right? So the idea is that uh, we are to see by faith, and then in the context of that, we will uh, navigate our way through this life. So we're going to begin with Matthew 17, uh, but I want to pick up with the last verse of Matthew 16, because I mentioned that right at the end last week. Uh, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now, obviously, Jesus is not saying that somebody will stay alive who's in that group until the second coming. Why would He not say that? He didn't know when the second coming was. He said, I don't know, the angels don't know, only my Father in heaven knows. He's not doing that. What he's saying is, and remember that in the context of God, time doesn't operate linearly like we do. 
And so God from the beginning sees the end and from the end sees the beginning in that total thing. And what he says is that there are some standing here who will not die before they see this manifestation of the kingdom. I also think he's referring to believers in general. There will be some who will not taste death. They will be caught up with the Lord in the air as Paul will will uh, tell us later. But there is, so this double-pronged thing, there are some here that are going to see the kingdom, and there are some who are going to live until the kingdom. We're going to look at the scene of the kingdom uh, in 17. So in chapter 17 it says, Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. Now, it is not unusual for Jesus in the Gospels to bring Peter, James, and John separate from the other disciples and let them see more intimate details of the, uh, of the process. Um, and it, the scripture says in verse 2, He was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make for you, uh, three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this voice, they fell down on the ground, terrified. And Jesus came up to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And as they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And his disciples then asked him, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Now, in this passage, we get two things that are revealed to the disciples. One is the manifestation of Jesus in his glory. In the context of that, Moses and Elijah show up. I've always found that fascinating. They are not resurrected, but they are recognized. Now, even if they were resurrected, even if they'd come bodily in that sense, the disciples wouldn't know what Moses and Elijah looked like unless Moses is standing there with tablets, right? I mean, the idea is that this, the, the knowledge of a spirit to a spirit in the spiritual world, we shall know even as we are known, the scripture says, is, is full. We only see what our senses allow us to see. And you and I have hearing that dogs can hear better. So we, 
to assume that what we hear, see, taste, touch, and smell is all of reality is absurd. It's not even all of natural reality or the creation itself. And the spiritual side is even beyond that. So the disciples are there. Jesus is transfigured. Now what's fascinating to me is, I think of Moses. Moses was on the mountain and he wanted to see God's glory. And God said, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. I'll put my hand over you. I'll walk by and you'll see the backside of my glory. But they're seeing Jesus full on in his glory. A manifestation that Peter will write about in his letter. The heavenly vision that we saw. We didn't fall uh, cunningly devised fables when we told you of the vision that we saw. We heard the majestic glory speaking, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now Peter says, it's good for us to be here. We'll build tabernacle. We'll build Sukkot really is what he's talking about. We'll build a place for you guys to, to have your talk. He doesn't know what they're talking about. But Luke tells us in his gospel that they're talking about Jesus' impending death. Wow. Moses and Elijah now know more than when they prophesied. They see it clearly. Right? It's, there's more here than meets the eye in that sense, right? And so, uh, they represent the law and the prophets, the Torah and the prophets, which spoke of Christ, uh, of Messiah. And while Peter is saying, okay, we'll, we'll set up Sukkot for all of you, this cloud appears and God says, this is my beloved son. I am well pleased in him. Listen to him. That voice, the voice of the father, is enough to put them all on their face. I dare say us as well, right? And then they're, they're touched. Okay, get up. Don't be afraid. And there's just Jesus there. He's now not in his glory He's back there. But they have seen what's really going on. They have a glimpse of what is to be. And it so overshadows this present reality. You would think they would be able to maintain that always. But like us, we get very, we see clearly for a moment and then it fades. And then, then we tend to go back to our immediate uh, context. So, uh, on the way down from the mountain, Jesus says to them, don't tell anybody about this. Don't discuss this until after I'm raised from the dead. You'll notice that there is more and more frequency of Jesus talking about his death and resurrection, and they just don't get it. How can someone who's that glorious be killed, right? So on the way down, they begin to ask questions. How come the scribes say that Elijah must come before this glorious coming? 
Because they saw Elijah, right? So what's, what's, okay, let's have a Bible drill here. What's going on, right? And Jesus says, Elijah will come and he will restore all things. I love that restoration because Elijah is going to turn the hearts of the children back to the hearts of the fathers and the fathers to the children. He's going to restore this family heritage notion of the faith passed down from generation to generation and many other things that have fallen apart along the way. He says, but I tell you that Elijah already came and they didn't recognize him, so they treated him the way they wanted to. In other words, if they had known who who John the Baptist was, they would have seen him in the spirit of Elijah and treated him like Elijah. But how do they treat him? Where do you have authority? Who are you supposed to be, right? Are you the prophet? Are you the Messiah? Who are you? I'm a voice crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. They simply don't get it. So what happens is they mistreat him. The leadership and certainly Herod, right? And Jesus says, I'm going through the same treatment. They're going to do the same thing to me because they don't know who I am. You know who I am. They don't know. I'm telling you not to talk about this because if you talk about this to people who don't get it and you're not ready to be commissioned yet, uh, it's just going to add to the problem. So don't talk about it. Don't talk about what you don't understand, right? So, uh, what happens then is the disciples now clearly see that John the Baptist is the forerunner of the Messiah like Elijah will be the forerunner of the Messiah in his glory, right? They begin to see that. So, I'm going to stop at this point. We'll discuss anything you want to talk about uh, before we go on. I think the reason for this moment is to let these primary disciples have a better glimpse that there is much more going on here than what you think. Because they're about to see Jesus seem to lose all power, to lose all place, to lose it all. And they need something to hang on to. I'm not sure they hang on to it. But the idea is he is manifesting to them so that they will say, wait a minute, this can't be the end, right? And yet, Peter and John at the tomb are trying to grasp the empty tomb and its meaning, right? So even though he's telling them this stuff plainly and showing it to them, uh, they're not quite getting it. So I think that's part of the reason. Of course, another part of it is so they will write this and and we'll get some of that information as well. The, The reason I think this is important, there is a part of biblical understanding that sometimes gets lost. And that is, every once in a while, you'll hear a scholar say, well, this story is simply the story of Uh, Abraham uh, retold. This is the story of Joseph retold. Daniel's not really, this didn't happen. It's just the story of Joseph, the the, uh, little narrative of Joseph being told in Daniel, 
right? In other words, these similarities are because they're just writing the, the, the patterns. No. God is doing the patterns so that we will begin to recognize them. Uh, so, John gives us that when he says, You have heard that Antichrist will come. Even now, there are many Antichrists. What does that mean? It means that there will be some who will come in the pattern of the Antichrist. You should be aware of that so that you know the, the dynamics and the pattern that's there. So, John the Baptist comes like Elijah will come. Elijah will be a fullness of this, but we get a pattern of it here and we see the same dynamics going on. Very important that we realize that the Bible is about sharing these patterns that give us discernment of the times that we live in. What patterns are we living in that we need to adjust on that basis? So it's, it's an important, it's one of the things that Dr. Lewis and I try to get the CBS students to understand is the Bible is not just a book about salvation and the end of time. It's a book about all time and all life and how to live it in anticipation of the ultimate uh, fulfillment at the end. Really important for us to get that and for our kids to get that. It's also, we may go through a generation where certain areas are not needed, but our children may go through that and need it. And our grandchildren may need it. So we need to make sure that we bring as much of it into our life and into our knowledge and pass it on so that those who need it will have it when, when they're ready. It's very difficult, very difficult when you're going through a crisis to do a Bible study on that crisis to figure out what to do. Uh, so this is why we prepare by reading, reading the scriptures. All right, uh, so we'll go on to the next part. Uh, we're ro rolling, right? Okay, so uh, we pick up at verse 14. Uh, if I can find it. Oh, there it is, okay. Now, when they came back down to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and is very ill. He is, uh, often falls into the fire and, off, and, uh, and into the water. I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. The disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why couldn't we drive it out? And he said to them, because of your little faith, here we go again, your short-sightedness. I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. And then you'll see in parentheses in verse 21, um, a, uh, or brackets there, uh, but this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Talk about that in a minute. Uh, this man brings his son and he describes him. Our English translation says lunatic. You know luna is from lunar. The, the Greek word is moonstruck. This guy at, in some kind of regularity has trouble. And ends up 
uh, falling into the fire and falling into uh, uh, the water. Dangerous. So, here's the deal. He needs to be cured. Jesus understands that there's something spiritual going on here. The disciples understand something spiritual going on here. But they can't affect the release of this man. I want to talk about something that happened many, many, many years ago at Cal Baptist when this verse came up. And I said something about this notion of being moonstruck was trying to figure out from the creation what's the trigger for this person. And another professor said to me, Dr. Stokes, now you know that this boy had epilepsy. And that this is a problem of epilepsy. And that's what's happening. He was having seizures. And if it was near a fire, he fell into the fire. And if it was in near water, he fell into the water. And I said, wow, you are amazing. You can diagnose a medical disease from a few verses in the Bible 2,000 years after the event. Then what is Jesus claiming that it's a demon for? Is Jesus accommodating their ignorance? And that's what the professor believed. I said, I don't believe that for a second. The point here is that you need to understand that there are causes and issues in this life that are not coming from natural causes. If we limit ourselves to only seeing the natural, we become short-sighted. And what the disciples are doing is they're trying to cure this guy. They're trying to do something. They can't figure it out. And they don't know what they're doing. Jesus says, you're short-sighted. Now, he's not saying you need more faith. He's saying you need your faith to be focused on eternal and spiritual things. Because if that's true, then you will be able to say to this mountain... Go over here and the mountain will obey you. Now, I don't think Jesus was talking about, I have a very big problem, I have a mountain of a problem, and I can confess it to go away. I think Jesus is literally saying, you can say, saddleback, move over there. Now, I can't do it. Because I have poquito faith, right? And I don't think I can do it just because I want to do it. I have to be so focused on spiritual reality that I understand what God is doing and I'm working with Him and then all things are possible and that's what he's talking about. For us, the problem is we don't see the spiritual sides to most of the things that's going on in our lives. Because we have been westernized to the point of believing that everything has a natural and uh, medical and all of those kinds of uh, uh, cause and effect nature. Now, there's a danger going the other way. The danger going the other way is to attribute things to being spiritual when they're not. 
In other words, finding a demon under every rock, a demon in every case of mental illness, a demon in every case of, of that, right? We have, we have believers who go that way. They think they're looking spiritually, but they're not. They're looking at physical things and then attributing to them spiritual notions. The spiritual discernment that we need to have is something we don't have and we need to grow in that. So I think that what Jesus is doing is, first the disciples have this transfiguration and they see it's a much more big spiritual world. And then they come down and realize that they're not a, they still are too short-sighted in this context. And that sometimes we have to depend more that God is at work and that something spiritual is going on. And remember, in the spiritual world, God is at work and Satan is trying to muck that up. Don't get the idea that Satan's powerful and God is powerful and it's a battle. It's like God and this little irritant fly that's causing trouble. Uh, but for us, that's big time trouble because we can't, we can't do any of this, right? But Jesus is giving us an idea that if we understand God and if we see the spiritual and if we trust even at the level of a mustard seed, we can affect even the natural world. So, something to think about, maybe something to to, uh, uh, consider. Uh, Now, what about this verse 21? Because this is where everybody kind of goes to in this. Uh, This kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Uh, Now we get another problem. This verse is not in the earliest manuscripts. It's found later. So there's two options. One is we haven't found the right early manuscripts and we will find one and it'll be there. Somehow it got lost and then got put back in. Or it wasn't there and somebody put it in. That seems to be the most reasonable thing from the manuscript evidence. I think it makes the most sense theologically because what people have done with this verse is think that what is the difference is Jesus spent more time fasting and praying than his disciples, and therefore they couldn't cast it out, but he could cast it out. And if we just pray more and fast more, then we can do that. Okay? I think that misses the point. That turns this into a formula. I'm going to pray more hours, I'm going to fast more days, and now I'll be able to tell that mountain to go. Jesus didn't say if you pray and fast, you can tell the mountain to move. He said if you have enough trust in what God is doing and discernment of the spiritual things, you'll be able to do that, right? So I think this verse probably should be uh, a verse that we're careful of. In my Bibles, historically, I put a blue highlight on verses that were iffy like this to make sure I don't build a doctrine on those verses. Uh, I don't need to do that anymore because I'm pretty much aware of where they are. But if you look at my Bible on my home altar, you'll see it's a King James Bible. So there's a lot of verses where I've, I put the blue in there. Uh, and that helps me to, to navigate through those. The NASB, most of the time, we put them in the margins... Uh, but there are a few places where we leave them in, but we use the brackets to make that indication. 
So we'll stop there and uh, see if there are any comments or thoughts on that one. Okay, so this is similar to the question that Anya brought up. Jesus seems to be exasperated with this generation. What's going on? Uh, I, think, I think part of it is he knows his time is short in that sense. Uh, we will see this in John's Gospel when Jesus says, If you knew where I was going, you would rejoice. And the disciples say, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? And he says, I am the way, right? And I'm going to the Father, and they say, okay, then show us the Father. And he goes, I've been with you this long, and you don't know that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? In other words, you're looking at me in the natural and not seeing the spiritual. I think, I think he is very frustrated at the blindness of Israel. And that's why I also think in these passages we get these Gentiles who seem to get it and he is amazed that they get it. So I think that that's what this is about. There is a terrible frustration in Jesus just like there was in, with God in the wilderness. Right? Every time a problem came up, what does Israel do? We're all going to die and our kids are going to die and everybody's going to die. You brought us out here to die. Right? And then God does a miracle. Another problem. We're going to die. Our kids are going to... Right? You know that. Finally God says, okay, you're right. You're going to die. And then I'll bring your kids in. Right? Uh, But he stays with them. The beautiful thing is that even if the Lord is mad at us, his wrath is but a moment. But his mercy is forever. Okay? And I know that firsthand. Okay? So, um, I think that that's part of what's going on here. You see this little mini Israel, the disciples, and the Lord leading them. And this same thing of they don't get it, they resist it, and there's a struggle in that, in that process. Other, other, yes. Yeah. Okay, so the question is, how do we get spiritual discernment, right? Spiritual discernment is part of spiritual maturity, like mental discernment is part of mental maturity, right? We first learn little basic things. We go from knowledge, facts, to understanding. Understanding, we begin to understand the interconnected relationships, and then we go from there to wisdom. I think most of us in spiritual things stay pretty much at the knowledge base and don't move to the understanding base, let alone to the wisdom base. And I think part of that is we do not have enough of the scripture in us so that we see things through the scriptural lenses. We see it through verses. We don't see it through maximum uh, interconnections, what I call the hyperlinks of Scripture. Um, And I've talked about those before, where you see the connections uh, of that. So, very few uh, people will recognize Yom Kippur and Good Friday as connected. In part because they're ignorant of Yom Kippur. 
Or, if they're Jewish, they're ignorant of Good Friday, right? In other words, what happens is, without the bigger picture and the fuller connections, you don't reach understanding level. That, I think, is the beginning of that discernment. And then, of course, I think it comes into full, which I certainly haven't reached, in the area of wisdom. So, how do we do this? The issue is to read the scripture, memorize the scripture, and you know that there are times when you see something and you have Bible verses firing off in your head about what's going on here, right? You see someone hardening their heart. You can, you can actually see it. You discern that they're hardening their heart to the Lord. So I think there's a point where you get there. It's not an emotional thing and it's not a charismatic thing in that, in that, that way. It's simply a, oh, I know what's going on here. It's almost like spiritual diagnosis. But you can't do that when you're doing ABCs or Alephate, right? You have to be words and paragraphs and, and uh, entire books uh, of the scripture pretty severely connected to your process of thinking. So that's the best I can give you on that. Are we running? Okay. Uh, is the uh, moving the mountain related to the separation of the Mount of Olives? In uh, I think that's in Matthew 24, 23, 24. I don't think so. I think he's literally saying to them, uh, you can affect this physical world if you have clear trust of God. Now, I think what he means by that is not that you can decide what you want and do it, but that you will uh, be able to do it in a spiritual way. Let me give you one example that's in the scriptures that I think makes sense to us. God said in the Torah, Israel, if you don't obey me, I will shut up the heavens and stop the rain. Just a statement that he makes. So Elijah comes along, right? And he says, You guys have been not obeying God, so he's going to shut up the heavens, and it will be done at my word. And then he prays for God to do it. And God did it. Now, I think that that was Elijah seeing and trusting what God said. So much that he said to God, okay, it's time to do this. And, and I will, imagine, he had to do this public. You can imagine what would have happened to Elijah if he'd come and he says, I'm praying and there's going to be no rain. And the next day, there's rain, right? You're kind of finished, right? So I think that Elijah is an example of that. He says he's the man of like passions as we are. And yet he prayed that it would not rain. And it did not rain for three years. Right? He, he didn't make that up himself. He was standing on the promise and the curse. And then speaking it in the context that he discerned that this was the appropriate time for that. So I think that's what we're after. As I say, I'm not there. Because I would do something about the traffic. I don't think there's a verse about that. So I would be making that up. Right? Yeah. Are we rolling? Okay, so 
I brought up that there are people who want to change the world for God. This sounds a little bit like you're changing the world for God. Okay? The difference is this. I'm changing the world for what I think God wants. That's speculation. I'm acting in the world towards the way God says He's changing the world. That's faith. We're not doing it by faith. We're doing it by, wouldn't it be good if this happened and everybody would believe in God? As if the whole purpose of the Bible is for everybody to believe in God. And that is not the purpose of the Bible. It's part of the purpose of the Bible. Not even that all people believe, but that we would believe, right? But there's other things he's doing. And we, we have a tendency not to know about any of those and try to put it all in that one basket. So I think that the difference is, it's, I, I've used this example, it's not, it's not perfect, but it's that idea. When, when I was very little, my dad put me on his lap in the car and let me drive the car. And so uh, I was driving the car. Now, his hands were down here. He was on the gas pedal and the brake, but I was driving the car, right? And so if we were going to go left, it didn't matter how much I pulled this way. We were going that way, right? And every once in a while, he would say, the other way, the other way. And I would do that, right? And it worked really well, and it turned the car. And I had a sense I was doing it, okay? I don't think you're going to move a mountain. But the mountain will move because you know the mountain's moving. Right? In other words, Father has told us the time is now. We see it and we speak it. I believe, therefore I speak. That faith is not moving the mountain. That's what we I want mountain moving faith. That faith is trusting God enough that that mountain will move. I think that that's the difference. That is a difficult sell in the current age. But that's what I think is going on. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So why is he talking to Moses and Elijah and not to David and maybe not to Noah, right? Or maybe Abraham, right? So Moses and Elijah for Israel represent the law and the prophets. In other words, they, they represent all that God has spoken. So, uh, I think that those two appear for the disciples' sake in seeing that Jesus is fully embraced by the law and the prophets, which is what he has said about himself. Search the scriptures. In them you think you have eternal life. And they, they speak of me. right? So I think that's what is going on. They are representative of the word of God that has been given so far. And now the word of God who is his son is going to give us the next statements. Listen to him. So that's a great question. All right, so we're going to move on. I'm not going to make it all the way through, but I'll make it through this next piece. And that's good because the part that uh, we're not going to do fits actually better in the, uh, the part that we'll talk about next time. So we're going to pick it up at um, verse 22 and 23, and then I'll stop. Uh, 
While they were gathered together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. He will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. Jesus now sits them down. And this goes back to the earlier question, the intensity of his frustration with them. He, he sits them down and directly says this. Okay? Now you know this. The disciples are always trying to figure out what Jesus means without listening to what he said. We do the same thing. right? He says, uh, Lazarus has fallen asleep. I go to wake him. Well, if he fell asleep, he's going, to be be- he's going to be fine, right? And so Jesus turns and says, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad I wasn't there for your sake, right? So that's the same thing here. He now sits them down and says, I'm going to be delivered to these chief priests, and they are going to kill me, and I'm going to rise from the dead on the third day. Now, there are two emotions that could respond to this message. One is the eye of faith. We have seen you come into your glory. We have seen you deliver a demon. You are in fact the Messiah. Yeah, I don't get this death thing. But raise the third day. It's all going to be okay. And we are rejoicing. But that's not what we get. They focus on the death. And they're grieved. I think we focus on this world and death too much. And I can't help but think of the end of the Torah where Moses says for God, Behold, I have set before you life and death, and you will choose life. Right? I think that that's the focus of faith. The focus of faith is life, eternal life, which means Whatever happens here, it's going to be fixed by the resurrection. And therefore, I can trust God and obey Him because nothing will separate me from His love. That should be our comfort. That should be our hope. That should be our rejoicing. But more often than not, we say, yeah, but it's going to be rough getting there. right?" <laughs> and, I, and then, you know, we, we got to gripe about the that. And my nature is that way too. Uh, it's just what we do. So let's, uh, let's close in prayer. And then if you have any last minute questions, we'll just do regular Q&A.